Tonight, after a year, we're back with E. Michael Jones. Uh, Dr. Jones, thank you very much for taking time out of your evening for this interview. You're welcome. So I have two books by Dr. Jones, and I'm on the cusp of ordering another one. And so I thought an interesting interview would be, I asked Dr. Jones, Dr. Jones to give a brief synopsis of all of his books. We'll have to go through them quickly. And to spice it up a little, I thought we might discuss, or I might let him comment on the cover art for each title. How does that sound, Dr. Jones? That's fine. Good. You can see my screen here. Okay. Yeah, I can. I can. This is uh, The Dangers of Beauty. Uh, it's my next, the most recent book. Uh, and uh, the subtitle is The Conflict Between Mimesis and Concupiscence. Uh, it begins with a description of mimesis, uh, imitation of nature, which is what Aristotle called it, and discover just part one discusses the development of uh, painting in Italy as more and more accurate forms of, of uh, imitation of nature. Uh, uh, at a certain point, I talk about uh, the uh, integration of geometry and art uh, of existence and essence. And then uh, at a certain point during the Italian Renaissance, it becomes clear that everyone has mastered these techniques. This is a painting uh, by Titian here, an early patient painting by Titian. Uh, he got the geometry down. Nobody had to explain the geometry anymore. And at this point, Titian got involved in psychology. And that's what we're dealing with in this picture, uh, which I chose. Uh, the, the, the other one I was thinking of was too risque for the cover. So we decided on this one which is risque enough. And yeah, this sense. is borderline risque. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and it is because uh, it shows you the daring of Italian culture at this time, how deeply they internalized the Gospels and how uh, daring they were in, in explicating the psychology behind them. So at this point, we have Mary Magdalene. This is uh, Noli Me Tangere, Don't Touch Me, uh, uh, an interpretation by Titian that has a, a real depth of uh, both uh, human psychology and uh, religious psychology as well. So Mary Magdalene here is reaching for Christ's genitals. Uh, he puts his hand up, uh, his right hand is up to kind of block that gesture. At that point, her eyes rise from the genital, in other words, from the, the sexual. The, 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 you always want union with the beloved. That's what she wants here. But she rises from the genitals to the heart, and this entails a sublimation of human sexuality into divine love. That's what that painting's about, and that's what uh, I, I chose it to be on the cover of the book. Now, do you think Italians in, what is it, 16th century, 15th century? uh 16th no yeah 16th century do you Wait, think yeah late 16th early 17th yeah right would italians at the time would they have been scandalized by this picture uh if you're asking me were they scandalized by developments in art the answer is yes i don't i have no uh understanding of whether this picture caused controversy but we do know that the the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel there, the the walls of the Sistine Chapel there, Mike, Michelangelo's frescoes, caused enormous uh, scandal among the cardinals, who uh, who accepted the nudity, uh, were a little bit upset about the the paganism, uh, but felt that it wasn't appropriate for a a chapel where you had worship that was distracting from the worship rather than enhancing the worship. So to answer this question, I don't know if this one was controversial. I know that uh, Titian was later, he's being pressured at this, this point to get into pornography. 
Mm. His best friend, Aretino, was uh, the uh, Europe's first pornographer. He did a book called Emoti, which had obscene woodcuts and obscene verses. He was That was his friend. His rich patrons were pushing him toward pornography. And uh, the other books, we could go into other paintings where he's reacting to that specifically. But this is an early, it's an optimistic painting. And it shows that uh, the human passion can be sublimated into something higher like uh, divine love. Love Very good. God. Great. Let's move on to the next title. Yeah, this is pretty straightforward. This is when uh, basically I'm not only uh, designing the covers, I'm executing the covers. And so I have minimal skills in this regard. And so it's simply a picture of uh, the famous Notre Dame, the dome at Notre Dame. Normally there's a, uh, uh, <laughs> normally, in reality, there's a statue of the Blessed Mother. It's gold, and she's at the top. And so I substituted the uh, statue with a question mark. Right. Pretty stra pretty straightforward. Now, you, uh, for a very brief time, taught at a another university in South Bend, Indiana, correct? Uh, it was St. Mary's College, which is across the street from uh, Notre Dame, founded by the nuns and sisters of the Holy Cross, uh, after the priest founded the uh, Notre Dame by the, the priest of the Holy Cross founded. And very so, quickly, for those who don't know, why don't you mention how your uh, how your tenure at that college ended? So I got a tenure track position in 1979, got fired. It was supposed to last six years and then I was supposed to get tenure. I got fired after one year because of my stand against abortion. I, that was kind of shocking for a Catholic college. Uh, the feminists had taken over the college during the 1970s, and they had control of tenure and uh, a promotion. And so I got fired uh, for being a Catholic. Uh, St. Mary's is back in the news again. They're going to admit some dude who claims he's a girl. He will show up uh, in the locker room, and the girls are going to be run out, run out screaming. So uh, uh, all I can say is uh, all I had to do back then was deny my religion uh, I don't, if it's much more serious now, so I'm glad I got out when I did. Okay. Next title. Monsters from the Id. This is Monsters from the Id. This is the, uh, my book on horror movies, uh, or horror in general. Uh, this is the famous, famous painting by Fuseli, uh, uh the, uh, Swiss, um, painter who went to England is called The Nightmare. Uh, and it has that kind of demon on the uh, on sitting on her chest. Uh, famous romantic painting. Uh, he he knew uh, Shelley and that crowd. Uh, he was familiar with them. Uh, and Shelley was the first man that we I dealt with in this book. Uh, his his girlfriend uh, Mary, who was the daughter of uh, William Godwin, uh, and he ran off, abandoning. Uh, Shelley, Shelley abandoned his first wife. I think she was 16 years old at the time. And uh, she committed suicide. And that burdened the conscience of Mary Shelley, who came back to Europe, uh, uh, back to England, and wrote Frankenstein as an expression of her burdened conscience, uh, which she could not express. And so uh, this, what you, you could say that was a demon, but you could also say that's the... Uh, the burden of sin on Mary Shelley's uh, conscience. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Jones, can you guess, I didn't know who the, who the painter was here, but can you guess who I thought it was by looking at that ogre on the woman? No, who? I thought that was Goya. It does have that 
does have that feel to it, doesn't it? Yeah, You're right. Mysterious. Yeah. Oh, it's it's Fuseli. Okay. Or or Fuseli is is what he was in Switzerland, but it, it got anglicized to Fuseli. Wonderful. Okay. Next title. Uh, this is uh, Libido Dominandi. I did uh, this book was originally published by uh, Bruce Fingerhut of uh, Saint Augustine's Press. He's gone to his eternal reward, uh, and uh, it, it it is Samson, Samson and Delilah, uh, and Delilah is uh, telling the, uh, the Philistines uh, to shut up, be quiet, because she's just shaving his head, and she shaves his head, and. He she he loses all of his physical strength because of that. This is an analog, uh, an early Hebrew story that uh, expresses what this book was about, which is basically that uh, uh, lust darkens the mind. Uh, uh, Samson ended up blind uh, after they cut off his hair. They gouged his eyes out, and this corresponds to about. About a thousand years later, St. Thomas Aquinas would say, lust darkens the mind. Uh, and so this is an early uh, description of the thesis of my book. I thought it fit very well. So I just took what Bruce did, and we, we started republishing it. I got the rights back, and we started republishing it about 20 years ago. No, it came out, about, it came out in 2003, so that was 20 years ago. Uh, oddly enough, the most famous example I've used of this was uh, the Israelis uh, invading Ramallah and occupying the TV stations and broadcasting pornography. It's not in the book. Uh, we're bringing out a second edition soon. Uh, it's not in the book, but it corroborates exactly what I said because it happened one year later. I gave that speech all over the world, oftentimes to audience, people in the audience who were Palestinians who corroborated what I said. Now, this is a Caravaggio painting, is it not? No, I don't think so. I, I don't know who it is, to be perfectly honest with you. I, I didn't choose it. It was Bruce Fingerhut who chose it. Okay. I think I may know. Um, front cover, Samson and Delilah by Michelangelo Caravaggio, 1573-1616. Okay, good. good. Now, You're right. speaking of lust, um, I read somewhere, I don't know if it's true, that Caravaggio was a bit of a womanizer. Yeah, that's... Yeah, they, they all run together in my mind. Is, isn't he the one that uh, 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 shacked up with the nun? It could be. Could be. One, one of them did. I, they're, they're running together in my mind at this point. Right. So the question I wanted to ask you is um, uh, Caravaggio is this uh, uh, lust-minded womanizer. Uh, Michelangelo is supposedly gay. Do these things matter when we look at the art? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I wrote a book called uh, De De Degenerate Moderns, which said basically that uh, if you subordinate the truth to your desire, uh, uh, you will end up uh, having bad, uh, bad, your, your, your intellectual project would fail. Question is, does that apply exactly analogously to uh, the, to the, to the art world? Right. I think it does. The, the difference here is the culture. Who, who it, it, these are cultural projects? None, nobody does anything alone, certainly not in Italy at this time. This was centuries of development of mimesis in art uh, under the auspices of a Christian Catholic culture that held it under control, held it under control. And what happened? This is again the thesis of my book, Danger, uh, Dangers of Beauty. Once the Christian control of the culture collapsed, which it did in the 20th century, 
the vacuum was filled by Jews, and that uh, their uh, hatred of Logos had an immediate effect on art, on the art world, uh, an immediate uh, uh, abandonment of mimesis and all the hard work that goes into that, and uh, ultimately headed off in the direction of uh, pornography uh, and then uh, total nihilism of the sort that we have now where the stuff is totally meaningless and ugly and anti-art. So I would say it applies on a cultural level. Uh, a little more difficult to talk about it on a natural natural level. Although you do, I, I, with Titian, I am familiar with the drama that was going on there. Uh, and uh, he, he tried to deal with it. He's trying to deal with it himself, his own sexual passions, but also the sexual passions of his patrons that keep pushing him in the direction of pornography. Right. Let's move right along. Degenerate Moderns. Okay, now this is my cover. I took it when I took over. It was originally published by uh, Ignatius Press. And they did a collage, which I didn't think was particularly uh, meaningful or attractive. Uh, and so when I took it over, I got this picture from uh, M. That is Peter Lorre, the famous German actor. Uh, and he's a child molester. Uh, and if you know that, then you'll, it's kind of a gloss on the term degenerate, uh, which was uh, my gloss on that whole, uh, the Nazi uh, art exhibit called Entartete Kunst. The Nazis uh, had a dim view of this type of culture, uh, the Jewish culture that had taken over Germany and the Weimar Republic. And uh, I thought that uh, I took the word and then I applied it to the modern modern era uh, and basically tried to describe how their personal lives had wrecked their intellectual lives. Mm -hmm. Was was Peter Lorre the guy that played the kind of slimy guy in Casablanca? Yes, yes, same guy. So he, he fled, he was a Jew, so he fled Germany, he ended up in Hollywood. The whole cast of Casablanca, I think, was a, a large, Conrad Veidt is in it too. So there were a, a lot of uh, German emigres, German Jewish emigres who ended up in Hollywood. And Peter Lorre was one of them. Do you like that film? Casablanca? Yeah. Doesn't everybody like that film? I think so. I think so. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> All right, Baron Metal. Yeah, this is the complicated, uh, complicated cover. Okay, and it's taken from uh, the fun, uh, one of the fundamental principles of uh, real economics that was articulated by Aristotle, who said that money is sterile. Uh, and I got the idea of barren metal from the Merchant of Venice where uh, Shylock is talking to Antonio and Shylock says to Antonio, uh, you know, let me lend you money. Uh, and uh, because I have lots of it because, and then he says, my ducats copulate faster than Laban's ewes and rams. Now this is, Shakespeare has a, is such a genius because he can plumb right in to the depths of Western culture. Uh, and Antonio says to um, Shylock, if it's breed of barren metal, keep it. So barren metal was from the, uh, the, the Catena Aurea, which was a series of prayers in England, the Catholic prayers in England. Shakespeare must have been familiar with it. It helped him to understand one of the fundamental truths of economics, which is that money is sterile. 
nobody knows this now. Uh, people always confuse wealth and money. And so it, it's a direct reference to something. Aquinas knew this. He understood what uh, uh, Aristotle was saying. And he said, money is sterile. He said, if you put two mice, if you put two ducats in a drawer and you come back six weeks later, you'll still have two ducats. If, on the other hand, you put two mice in a drawer, you'll come back and the drawer will be full of mice. This is his way of saying that money is sterile. And Mike Murphy, a local artist, is the one who created this cover for me based on my uh, description, my instructions. Great. Slaughter of Cities. This is, again, uh, was uh, first published by August St. Augustine's Press, and Bruce Fingerhut is the one who designed the cover, or whoever was working for design at that point. And these are uh, a series of pictures that I sent him uh, of Detroit. That's basically the the, the freeway system in Detroit. And on the right-hand side, there are two pictures from the race riots that took place in Detroit when uh, they tried to smuggle uh, blacks. The social engineers tried to bring blacks into uh, St. Louis, the King Parish in Detroit, which was a Polish parish. That's where that that uh, collage comes from. Okay, I was assuming that the one on the lower right was uh, the uh, the company thugs breaking up the strikers, but pretty close. No, no, it's the cops. Yeah, the, the cops are on horseback there, and they're right. breaking up the uh, the uh, the de the demonstrators, the Polish guys who didn't want blacks moving into their neighborhood. They were, of course, right. The the Poles were right. They didn't. They they had an intuitive sense that educated people did not have. They saw it as an assault on their neighborhood and they were ready to, you know, basically take up clubs and beat these people. And there's another picture they don't have of the poor black couple. They just up from Mississippi or someplace like that. You can, their eyes are this big. They're scared, scared to death that they're going to get killed by this white mob, which is not supposed to exist in the North. And that's why they left the South. Right. Victims on both sides. Yeah, it was the social engineering. That's exactly what it was. And uh, everyone, the blacks and the whites, or the Catholics and the Negroes, were pawns in that game. Uh, ballet parking. Yeah, this is, uh, I did, this is uh, Amber Newman. Uh, she danced with my son, Sam, at uh, South Hole Ballet uh, in South Bend, Indiana, the ballet company. Uh, and every year, this was, was kind of a celebration of the Nutcracker. Every year, the people would come in from the suburbs to this old uh, school that had been taken over by the ballet company, and they'd rehearse and do the ball uh, ballet. So obviously, it's my play on the word valet parking. Uh, it's ballet parking because everybody came in from the suburbs and parked around there. And so the, we have Amber uh, in a parking lot there uh, in South Bend, Indiana. Great. Uh, I'm originally from Seattle, and one thing that the uh, the Seattle Ballet was famous for was a yearly performance of the Nutcracker, but they would always do it with characters from, uh, I think his name was Maurice Sendak. You remember that book, Where the Wild Things Are? Yeah, yeah, I do remember that. It was it was really good because everything was done with the uh, Where the Wild Things Are um, costumes and stuff. It was, my kids loved it. Yeah, every kid loves the, the ballet parking. Yeah, uh, this is this is a, a book by the late Nino Langiuli and Arthur de Clemente. It was called Brooklyn Existentialism. Uh, again, this is Mike Murphy again, and uh, he, uh, you know, Brooklyn Bridge. What can I say? It's pretty straightforward. Okay, Dionysus 
rising. Okay, this is again after uh, uh, Ignatius Press, probably the first one. It was another collage, which I didn't think was particularly effective. And this is uh, Mick Jagger at the Altamont uh, concert. Concert, uh, the the sequel to Woodstock. So this is December of 1979, and this is a the, a still that is taken from the movie. Now I may be wrong here, but there is a movie called "Gimme Shelter." Mm -hmm. uh, the Maisley Brothers did a documentary of that that concert, and the movie is famous because one of the a black guy there gets stabbed to death by the Hell's Angels, uh, so actually dies. So. The perfect, I thought it was a perfect, uh, Mick Jagger at this point is the perfect modern epitome of Dionysus and Woodstock and, and Altamont were the perfect, uh, they were the epitome of the resurrection of the Dionysian festival. And as Euripides knew, <laughs> when you have those women dancing naked on the mountainside, someone's going to get hurt. And Pentheus died there. And I forget the guy's name here. He's in a green suit. He died, the black guy. Uh, died here too so it was uh this is my uh the modern incarnation of dionysus right and as you've mentioned before all music uh has a spiritual element spiritual element and uh it's up to us to find out whether it's a dark side or a or a light side yeah music goes directly to the soul that's why it's so powerful and uh, Plato would have banned these modes uh, if he had power. But uh, we lost control of the culture uh, during this period of time. The, the adults lost control of the culture. Uh, and so uh, these festivals allowed people to act out fantasies that they would have been better off not acting out. <clears throat> Islam and Logos. Yeah, now um, this is um this uh, john beaumont edited my stuff people kept complaining that uh, my books were too long <laughs> and so john beaumont decided to come up with shorter versions and this was this is one of them and to be honest with you obviously uh we were trying to come up with some type of uh i don't i think i had some type of um do i had the uh, the idea for this uh and did do you know if elisa did this I don't know where Elisa is now doing my covers. Lisa Rangel is doing my covers and or helping me with the covers. I'm not sure whether she did this or not. I don't know who did this. Um, what is that? Uh, I think it's I think it's uh, Saint Sophia, the church in uh, Istanbul, Constantinople, the one where the it used uh, to be. It's a mosque now, but it used to be a, a an Orthodox church. That's right, and of course, you've seen the interior, the modern interior. They take all the art and all the paintings down and just put up uh, um, Arabic writings here and there. Right. That's because uh, they uh, Muslims are iconoclast, uh, and uh, that's part of the uh, part of the the uh, oppression that took place when the uh, the Arabs conquered Persia. They had a, a an art world that simply got stunted. Everything got stunted in Persia. It was one of the most advanced cultures in on the face of the earth. Uh, and then Islam arrived, and uh, they went into a state of shock that lasted two centuries. And finally, Ferdowsi started writing, wrote the epic uh, poem in Farsi. They retained their language, and so there's been a, a kind of contest there, back and forth between Persian and Arabic uh, cultures. Ever since, it's led to a new kind of Islam, Shia Islam. It's a little bit different than the Sunni Islam. I try that uh, to get back to this. I, 
uh, met a woman from Afghanistan. Uh, uh, she was studying at Notre Dame. I just got to know her. And I showed her the Titian uh, painting uh, that we began by talking about. And she just looked at me and said, you're crazy. <laughs> there was no sense. Uh, she didn't understand that at all. Another uh, Muslim woman uh, living in London just wrote to me and said, you know, what is this picture of a the statue of a naked man in Florence? What is that all about? <laughs> she was referring to Michelangelo's David, yeah. which is an extraordinary piece of sculpture. And these are people that have never had any type of development or uh, enculturation when it comes to mimesis, none whatsoever. Now, I've been in mosques in Iran, and believe me, the tile is beautiful. Yes. Uh, the, the, that blue tile that they, the, the ceiling, one of my greatest regrets in life, I was in, just had, it was in Isfahan. And had been to the mosque, and then my guide took me to the rug shop next door, and they sat me down. And there was a rug, a silk rug, based on the ceiling of the uh, Isfahan mosque. And I thought, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And I, he said, well, pick out a rug. And I said, and I said, well, you pick it out. And I ended up with a bath mat from Baluchistan when I should have just said, I don't care how much it costs. I want that thing. Because they have developed this idea of, I mean— Albert Barnes would dismiss it as wallpaper, but it's really beautiful wallpaper. Okay. That's shocking that he would dismiss it in such a fashion. <laughs> Ethical Sex. Yeah, this is a book by Anthony McCarthy. He chose the artwork. It's uh, basically a family, a fresco of family uh, in the uh, time of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. You know, this reminds me of a fresco I saw at um, Pompeii. And uh, have, have you ever been to Pompeii, by the way? No, never been there. Uh, they got a great uh, museum, the Pompeii Museum in in um, uh, Napoli in Naples, and then and then the location itself is 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 amazing. But there's this one fresco, and I, I can't remember which Greek or Roman god it was, but I think he's called Priapus, and he's a He's a character that always goes around with an erection. And yeah. this was on a fresco right at Pompeii. Yeah. yeah, there were whorehouses in Pompeii and the frescoes were there to kind of get you in the mood. <laughs> Interesting. All right, the Medjugorje Deception. Yeah, this is uh, me. No, actually my concept, but uh, it basically this was when I was working with the Philadelphia artist, uh, Robert McGovern. You've got a, a kind of poor uh, reproduction here, but basically that's the church in Medjugorje. But if you look closely at it, there's a, a kind of sinister figure behind looking out from mm. behind the church, which you can't really see in this picture. Uh, and that, that that's pretty much it. It's just the church. I, I tried to come up. There were all kinds of awful pictures of the Blessed Mother. It's, it's a phony apparition, and the pictures look exactly like that. Uh, curiously, no, you never see the feet of the Virgin, probably, probably because it's a cloven hoof uh, of the image that was appearing there. But anyway, I, I decided I couldn't stand that idea, so I just opted for something, which I th think was originally a woodcut. I don't remember now, but I think it might have been a, a Bob was famous for doing woodcuts, and they used to decorate uh, the covers of every issue of Fidelity magazine. We changed to you know different format when I changed it to Culture Wars. But I think that's what this was. 
Now, is is this sort of dark figure behind the church here? Is it supposed to represent someone in particular? Is it safe? Yeah, the, yeah, the, the people who are behind it. Okay. The people who are behind the... Uh, so it, it's basically like the mask at the Carnival of Venice. If you look at the whole picture, there's a figure holding up this mask. That really, that's the church is really a mask to, disguising some type of sinister figure behind it. If you want to know the story of who's behind it, you could read the book. Yep. <laughs> I would tell you. I'll give you a hint. And it wasn't any of the seers. They were all just children at the time, and they were manipulated by figures behind the scenes. And you can ride, read the book and find out who they were. There are more than one. Excellent. And it appears to be on sale as well. Yeah. Man Behind the Curtain. Yeah, my most recent. This has come back with a vengeance. I published this book uh Seven years ago, when uh, Michael Voris's homosexual past first caught up with him, I was collaborating with him on a loose basis. It was supposed to get deeper at that point, and that broke off. I, he was just lured all of us into it under false pretenses. He is has been living a double life, whether he was living it exactly then, but his homosexual past caught up with him. And uh, so there's the idea of a mask there, you know, the double life. Uh, did, you that's know, from, did you know about his homosexual past when you first were involved, when you first met him? No, absolutely right. not. I, I wouldn't have become involved with him if I knew that. And the, the man that, who got me involved was the one who lent him a significant amount of money. He wouldn't have lent him the money. So it was all under false pretenses. So this is uh, the uh, – he loved uh, watching the Phantom of the Opera. And so hmm. that's the uh, that's the uh, the kind of mask-like character there. Uh, and then there are figures behind him, and that is also important too. So yeah, notice, is, is that Michelle Malkin there on the right? To be honest with you, I don't know anymore. I think that's uh, Timothy Gordon up there on the top right. I don't know who that lady is. I, no, I think it's Christine Niles. Is it Christine Niles? I think it is. Not sure. I'd have to look at a, a, okay. a better better reproduction. Gotcha. John Cardinal Kroll. Yeah, I think this is an absolutely stunning cover. <laughs> I have to. I think this. <laughs> One of the best covers we ever did. Uh, and it was Mike uh, Murphy who did it, but it was, I was the one who did, uh, basically came up with the design. He came up with the execution. So, But the, the uh, he did a really good job uh, with the photography coming together. It's simple black and white. And uh, what you have is Cardinal Kroll, a great picture of Cardinal Kroll right there in the front and in the, in the foreground. And in the background, you have... Uh, black kids on Columbia Avenue during the 1964 riots. That it's just a great cover. I, I absolutely love this cover. In which and, city? Philadelphia. Uh huh. Columbia Avenue in Philadelphia. Obviously, he was the Cardinal Archbishop of Philadelphia uh, during the 1960s when this happened. Uh, a man who, uh, you know, had many gifts, but uh, perception of Culture was not one of them, uh, and certainly not the weaponization of culture. And so he was kind of clueless, as were most people, as was basically the entire church during this period of time. Didn't understand, thought that there, didn't understand that there were forces behind the scene, like the Ford Foundation, weaponizing migration. We're obviously familiar with this now. It's a big deal in America. Obviously, the southern border, the Jews, Mayorkas, is letting anybody in, terrorists, God knows what. Uh, but that's not the issue. It's uh, basically going to dilute the uh, native process. The same thing is happening in um, Europe at this time. 
uh, all of the refugees from Syria are inundating Europe. Uh, so this, I was the first one to talk about uh, this as ethnic cleansing. That's in the book. The Slaughter Seas came out after this. It could only come out because I had done the research for the Kroll biography and had seen the archives, the diocesan archives. Now, uh, I assume this was in the 60s. Do you know the exact year that these riots took place? 64. 64. So just a year before the uh, the Great Immigration Act. Right. Right. Well, this is this is migration. It's just my it's internal yeah. migration. It was blacks. Uh, the Ford Foundation hired this minister, Leon Sullivan, to go down to North and South Carolina and bring black people up and flood the cities. And 60 by 64, 10 years earlier, uh, the blacks crossed Lehigh Avenue. And that was when my parents pulled out of uh St. Columbus Parish, an Irish parish, and moved into a kind of suburb, even though it was technically inside the uh, the uh, uh, city boundaries. Is there any lingering Irish flavor to your first neighborhood in Philadelphia, or is it gone? No, it's completely black, completely ethnically cleansed, <clears throat> completely gone. There's not an Irishman left. The, the one neighborhood that is struggling may still be struggling. I don't know, maybe they've been taken over to it was Grace Ferry one of the classic Irish tough guy neighborhoods in, in Philadelphia. This is uh, reminiscent. If you want to know the cultural artifact, it's Rocky. Mm. Rocky was, it, it, Sylvester Stallone grew up about a mile away from where I grew up. Uh, he's two years older than me. Uh, I think that Rocky, I know the guy that Rocky was based on. It was a guy, a thug uh, from Father Judge High School by the name of Jerry Judge. Uh, the toughest, meanest, ugliest guy in Philadelphia at that time. Uh, and he could just beat the shit out of anybody and did uh, on a regular basis. And then the, he white, the white Leroy Brown. He so And then he became a, uh, a, went professional, became a professional boxer, and he ended up in the ring with George Foreman. Wow. Uh, and this was a big moment in Northeast Philadelphia. Everybody was hanging around at the bar, and he goes one round with George Foreman, who kind of toys with him. George, he comes out in the second round and just knocks him down, knocks Jerry down. And at that point, Jerry grabs him and throws him onto the canvas and they start wrestling. And Howard Cosell is there saying, this is terrible. I think that made it into the first Rocky movie. <laughs> That's at remember. the beginning of that first Rocky movie. If you remember, they're in some school auditorium. There's a, a mural of Christ in the background and they start rolling around on the floor. If Sylvester Stallone is listening, please let me know if I'm right here. Contact me at jones at culturewars.com and we'll do a program about this. You know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of Ali towards the end of his career when he went to Japan and he fought that Japanese pro wrestler. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what, and the guy was the guy was lying on the ground kicking him or something like that. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. It was just a publicity stunt. But now you have guys who roll around on the canvas all, all the time. It's called mixed martial arts, which I, I think should be banned. I think that's criminal. That, that should be banned. That's not, uh, shouldn't be allowed. I grew up in the golden age of boxing in Philadelphia. If you wanted to know how to box, you had to go to Philadelphia to some crummy gym in North Philadelphia. And that's where Joe Fraser was. Uh, that's where Muhammad Ali was. Muhammad, I, Muhammad Ali walked into the art gallery that I worked in. <laughs> it was run by Jews. So he's looking around and they're trying to sell him a painting. And he says, you know, it's, it's too much. He says, only Jews know how to hold on to money. <laughs> Ali said that. Yeah, Ali said that. <laughs> 
Where where was uh, on the waterfront made? Was that's, that... Bro that's Brooklyn. Isn't, uh, isn't that's Brooklyn? That's New York. Okay, great. All right, let's move on. Mississippi flows into the Tiber. Yeah, this is uh, another uh, my my concept, my title. We we were. This is John Beaumont. It's a great book. Uh, you can read it. You know, you uh, it. Uh, it's a story of all the American converts to the Catholicism. Got great stories in there. John did a great job. Uh, uh, you find out that uh, Ernest Hemingway converted to Catholicism. So did uh, so one of the greatest American novelists converts to Catholicism. The greatest American poet, Wallace Stevens, he converts to Catholicism. They end up both at the same time in Key West, Florida, and they get into a fist fight. Uh, what better thing for Catholics to do, the Catholic artists uh, to do, beat each other up? Anyway, that story is in this book. And so I came up with the title. It's a play on uh, Wilkins' Rhine Flows Into the Tiber. Uh, and I, I asked Mike to come up with uh, a, a visualization of it. And this is what he did. I don't think it's a good cover. I, I just, it's too, it's too watched out. It's not as good as uh, the Crow Book cover because the, the image is too washed out and you can't really see what's going on. Okay. Shylock's Ewes and Rams. Uh, again, this is one of John Beaumont's edited shorter versions. It's it's a shorter version of Baron Metal, my book on Catholic economics, because people were complaining about reading. Uh, uh, the book's only 1,200 pages. I don't know why people are complaining. What do they have better to do? <laughs> what are they going to do? Watch television, you know, Instead of just hanging around watching Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, you should be reading this book. But anyway, we came out with a shorter version. And I don't know. Did, would Elisa do this cover? I don't know. I don't know. Can you give just a really short, small paragraph definition of usury? Yes. Uh, compound interest on a loan. What about excessive interest, but not compound? <laughs> that's just funny. Like a high uh, rate. <laughs> well, that's what it came to me. So I there's a, the last sentence of uh, Rerum Levarum, uh, Pope Leo XIII contemns rapacious interest. That's the way it's yeah. been translated. So uh, some guy's trying to argue with his father, and the father says, well, look, I'm against... Uh, Rapacious interest. I'm not against compound. Just rapacious interest. Well, actually, that's pretty much what happened. Is that uh, because of the complexity, because of the devaluation of money uh, through inflation, which we're experiencing right now, uh, it just became uh, high interest rates. Yeah. You know. And, well, that went down the drain when Volcker became uh, head of the Fed, and uh, the Fed was paying twenty percent on T bills. Yes. That's 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 usury. That's usury. Right. Uh, because they were charging people. They, they could pay that because they were charging people loans close to that. And that was ruining the economy at that point. Right. So it kind of comes down to a reasonable definition of what's excessive. It's kind of like going to court and a, a reasonable amount of doubt to convict. Look, it, you can't deal with that. If you're going to deal with it philosophically, you can't deal with with usury at all. You can't have interest at all. That is the teaching of the Catholic Church. It was articulated by Benedict the Fourteenth in, in uh, Vix Pervainet. The, the classic example is uh, the Fugger family 
uh, started lending the Habsburgs money. They were Catholics. They lent them. They never charged more than 6% when the going rate among the Jews was 43 and a third percent. And uh, over the next, uh, they started in 1492. Uh, over the next 10 years, the uh, Habsburgs came into the possession of every gold and silver mine in the new world. That was money. That was money. And within 50 years, they went bankrupt. How can you go bankrupt when you own every gold and silver mine in the new world? The short answer to that question is compound interest. Because mm -hmm. after, I think it's 70 years, floating loans become unrepayable because that exponential curve kicks in and that's it. Hence the 50-year jubilee on loans? You have to have, you have to... Uh, uh, have forgiveness? You have to have forgiveness of loans. And th the way we do this in this country is liberal bankruptcy laws. So they do, they do, it's called taking a haircut. And, but the problem is only the rich and powerful get loans forgiven. If you're some poor schmuck like who a has student. a student loan, uh, you're just going to be taken to the cleaners and ruined because you don't have the political power of Donald Trump, who was basically, he was too big to fail. You know, mm -hmm. if, 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 the, if you owe the bank $10,000, you're in trouble. If you owe the bank $10 million, the bank is in trouble. Right. So I guess what you're saying is the only way to take out the uh, ambiguity and subjectivity of excessive interest is just ban it completely. Ban all interest on loans. Ban compound interest. Okay. Living machines. Yeah, I, this is, uh, again, my, uh, again, this was published by Ignatius. They did one of their collages, which I didn't think was very effective. And so I found this picture of Walter Gropius. Uh, that's who that is. And that's uh, one of the modern Bauhaus building there. And I thought it was an effective cover, effective cover. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Have you been to Cologne, Germany in the last, say, 12, oh, 10 or 15 years? Uh, no, I was there 50 years ago. Okay, good. So you're quite familiar with the with the cathedral, with the dome. Yes, yes. What an amazing structure. Well, yes. about I have a friend in in Bonn, and and we often go up to Cologne, and uh, or down to Cologne if you're going by the the river current, and um, about just a 15 minute walk along the the river there. And of course, there's that beautiful old bridge too. Um, but 15 minutes down, there's this giant cube it looks like an l and, and my friend says oh yeah that's uh those are one million dollar uh condominiums just glass block structure and uh that's what this title reminds me of well that was his term because the this is my translation of gropius's term which is von machine which would translate uh, mach machines for living in so he was a, a a kind of this is the late enlightenment they're fascinated by the machine and Germany was always good at design, at you know modern design, and so they came up with the term von machine. Uh, it was a disaster mm -hmm. uh, from the human point of view because nobody wanted to live in one of these high-rise things. And so, uh, so this is what the book is about, basically. Uh, whether it's uh, you know Schuylkill Falls in Philadelphia, Pruitt Igo in uh, in St. Louis. Uh, wherever the these were this was uh warehousing for black people who had come up from the south they're called projects right and uh, they eventually got, blew them up uh because <laughs> nobody wanted to live there anymore 
Yeah. Uh, and so you had uh, the, the famous one in Berlin is called Gorpiestadt, which is named after the founder. Uh, and it's just dreary. Uh, this was this was basically, I think it's part of the punishment uh, in Germany for World War II. <laughs> they built uh, in, in, no, in Dusseldorf, you can go see the Drei Scheiben House, which is like three slices of bread next to each other. Uh, it's dreary and ugly, and it's been repudiated. They had to build fast after World War II because the American war criminals uh, engaged in the carpet bombing of German cities and the civilian population. Right. Did I say German? I meant American war criminals did this. Right. right. Uh, I'm sorry. The American war criminals did that, and so they had to build fast, and so Bauhaus was the answer to that. Right. Uh, did you did you climb up the stairs of the tower of the, the dome in um... – Cologne? No, I didn't. I did not. Okay. By the way, uh, do you have a favorite cathedral in Europe or around the world? I'd have to. It's, if it doesn't come immediately to your mind, no, you don't have a favorite. So okay. I've been. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, yeah. No, I can't. I can't come up with something. It's it. That's hard. Would Chartres be in your top ten? <laughs> I've never been there. I've never been to Chartres, so I can't really comment on it. Okay. Now, um, here we have two editions of the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Right. First edition is, again, uh, no, no, wait a minute. This, we had I had a deal with John Sharp, and uh, he backed out at the last minute. But he did send me the image, and so that was the image that I used uh, on my book, the original image, which is Jesus Christ being tried before uh, Caiaphas. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the first edition, and then uh, uh, I kept writing, and that was, I think, 12, 1,200 pages, something like that. Uh, and uh, it turned out to the, the second edition came up to about 1,800 pages. And I thought, this is too much for one book. The book, the binding won't hold. So I had to break it down into three volumes. And at this point, I needed, in a sense, three separate covers. And mm -hmm. that, my my grandson, uh, Tim Jones, is the one who did the covers for this. Oh, your grandson. Okay. How old was he when he drew, when he drew that? Uh, that's a good question. That's a good question. He was in his 20s, his, or his early 20s, I believe. I think he had just graduated from the uh, Tyler Art School of Temple University. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which was my alma mater as well. And so the three uh, the three pictures are, uh, you know, Christ and the Jews choosing Barabbas. And then volume two is Shabbatai Zivi. Mm -hmm. And then volume three is Trotsky when the Soviet Union. So those are the three covers. And the, uh, the, the, uh, the, obviously the lettering has a kind of uh, Jewish feel to it, that kind of Hebraic feel to it, right. at least on that one. I think there's a different type of lettering in the, uh, the Trotsky version. But anyway, that's where that idea came from. I think, I think it's an effective use of black, white, and red. That's one of my favorite color combinations. Like it's always sophisticated, always simple, uh, and, uh, and powerful. You know, Always powerful. That yeah. was that was the same thing as the the Kroll biography. It mm -hmm. was black, white, and red. It's like the zebras, you know, yeah. sun the sunburned zebra, or the newspaper. It's like black and white and red all over. <laughs> right, right. There's a reason Antifa chose those colors, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a power. It it does have that red army feel to it too. Yeah. Yep. Uh, especially the third volume. Mm -hmm. Okay, Logos Rising.
Okay, this is another uh, production of uh, Tim Jones. Um, uh, but it's my, how the, this is the most abstract book I've ever written in my life. Okay. How, how can you, uh, uh, what's the image of a, of metaf metaphysics, of being? This is a book about being. Can you give me a picture of being? <laughs> this is kind of the thing that was uh, in my mind at that point. But then I came up with the title of Logos Rising. And as soon as I had the word rising, then I thought of the sun. And that's what this is. So this is biographical. Uh, my idea was biographical. Uh, this is the St. Joe River. Mm -hmm. uh, this is You cannot take a picture of this because this image only exists in my mind. So I have a deep and intimate relationship with the St. Joe River. I have uh, shared body fluids with the St. Joe River on numerous occasions when I flip my racing shell. In South uh, Bend. Yeah, and South Bend flows through South Bend. That's where the name came from. It's the South Bend of the St. Joseph River. And it, before this program tonight, I took a walk along the St. Joe River. So in the in the wintertime, I walk along it. And in the summertime, I row on it. And if you turn to, if you get to uh, uh, Mishawaka, we row up upstream to Mishawaka. The total trip is about five miles. Uh, you get to Mishawaka, you turn around, and in the summer, the sun rises over the river. And that's what we're seeing here. Uh, but this is, the other part of it is, if you walk in the winter, you're not going to see the sun rising. But you see these images of these tall buildings with the lights on in a kind of twilight. It's very striking. And that's what it was. I was a little too late tonight. Because if you get out at just the right time, you see the colored sunset. Uh, or in this instance, the colored dawn. Uh, and what you see is buildings on both sides and it's church and state. This is obviously the, I think what Tim had in mind there was the Sears Tower in Chicago. And this is obviously a church with a steeple. Uh, and that's, I think, a successful, a successful cover. Mm. Mm. Me too. Um, what was I going to ask you about? Oh, um, you've been asked this a million times, but could you give us a quick definition of logos? Logos is the Greek word for word. Uh, it is the heart of Greek philosophy. It became, at the time of uh, Heraclitus, logos became uh, the fundamental, the ultimate reality of the universe. That's what this book is about. When they finally broke with material picture thinking, like Thales saying everything was basically water. Uh, it is speech. It is rationality. It is the order of the universe. It's all of those things all wrapped up in one, which is why I had to use a Greek word, because I, there's no English, uh, German, Latin, or any modern word that has the resonance that the word logos has. And so that's why I had to bring it back. Excellent. Okay. I think and this, this is our most our most recent book, and this is totally the creation of Mike Bajakis, the uh, the sound man. Mm -hmm. I just gave him the idea. Uh, the idea, obviously, that there's a narrative that you can portray. The idea of doing a uh, a drive-in movie, I think, was a stroke of genius. Uh, I wouldn't have thought of that, but I think it's just it's effective. It's sinister. Those cars parked there are, are you'll never get out of that parking lot, fellas. I'm sorry, the way they're parked there. You're stuck there forever. 
And it reminds me, I don't know whether Mike had this in mind, but it reminds me of the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin, which is like a series of boxes, an, incre an incredibly transgressive piece of sculpture that is clearly an attack, a Jewish attack, a Jewish assault on the German people. And one more attempt to rub their noses in shit and make them feel guilty about something that needs to be explored historically and cannot be explored historically because it's against the law in, in Germany. So this is uh, my attempt to show you the kind of sinister nature of what's going on here and an attempt to break it out of it. Uh, that's the story there. Now, uh, this book is more along the lines of how the narrative, how the story is used rather than the nuts and bolts and details of, you know, uh, the Holocaust itself. Is that correct? Because you're yeah, kind of it's a, it's a I'm saying that the Holocaust is an, a series of narratives, a right. series of books. There's no, there's no objective, uh, if you want to say objective reality out there that everyone is going to accept uh, about what happened during World War II. And uh, what I'm saying, I mean, the, to give you the, the kind of summary of the book in, 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 uh, the first, I think, the definitive narrative at the beginning was it was about Dachau. Dachau was the paradigmatic concentration camp, and uh, the the people who were talking about that were it was a Catholic narrative. Father Johann Lenz from Austria spent years in Dachau, and he wrote a book called Christus in Dachau, which was a Catholic narrative that said, you know, we were being punished for atheism. Uh, and God uh, allowed us to suffer and we expiated sin and because there's a purpose to suffering. And now we learned our lesson. That narrative was hijacked three years later. That book came out in 55, was hijacked three years later by Elie Wiesel, who collaborated with the Jews hijacked it. Uh, but Elie Wiesel had written a, a, a memoir in Yiddish full of uh, 600 pages, I believe, uh, in Yiddish, which nobody could read. And he went to uh, Francois Mauriac, and Mauriac translated it into elegant French. He'd already won the Nobel Prize for French literature. And uh, that became Night. Nuit. And uh, I have uh, four grandchildren who uh, went to high school, and all four of them had to read that book uh, and learn that the, the, the meaning of the Holocaust narrative is God died at Auschwitz. So it's propaganda for atheism. This is the scandal. And I, this, one of the main reasons I broke the book is to break this kind of uh, Jewish distortion of what happened uh, during World War II and bring back the Catholic narrative. Okay. Well, we are almost up with our hour. So uh, I guess my last question for you would be this. Do you, is one of these books what you would consider your magnum opus? And if, if you don't have if, one that if it is, I don't know which one it is. Right. I mean, you can, you can go by pages. You could weigh them, I suppose, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and judge that way. But, uh, I, I don't, I don't feel in any way that I, I feel that it's like a ladder or like a pyramid, you know, you had to pile one block on top of another. I, in order to write this book, I had to write the book before it and so on and so sure. forth. Sure. But uh, all I have been banned from Amazon. Yes. Now this is scandalous. Okay, and I'm going to tell you right now, it was the ADL that did it to me during that big purge, and they they this is a tribute uh, to proof 
that they do not how to how to counter anything that I said in these books because they have to ban them. So if you want to buy any of these books, they are all available at fidelitypress.org or culturewars.com. Fidelitypress.org or culturewars.com. Do not go to Google. Do not Google my name because Google is an agent of the ADL and that's a uh, Jewish thought control, uh, which is purpose is to keep you stupid and on uh, the go the reservation they've reserved for Goyim. Okay. Well, Dr. Jones, I think this was very informative. It's really going to help me choose my third book. And I want to thank you for your time. Well, thank you for having me on. It was, I enjoyed it. Me too.